first glance is an idiom that we often use. It's a turn of phrase that we often use. I mean, think of Zillow. Uh, Some of us look at Zillow all the time. And we've all looked at pictures of a house and said, at first glance, man, these pictures look pretty nice. Good size living room, good size kitchen. I like the floor plan. I mean, this looks like a good house. And then inevitably you schedule a visit to that house. You show up and you say, well, man, these floors are, are really creaky. And the furnace is about 30 years old. The kitchen's a lot smaller than it looked like in the pictures. And it smells like a dog in here. A dog and cigarettes in this house. They tried to clean the carpet, but it just made it worse. At first glance, it seemed like a dream house. But in reality, it was something much, much different. We do this with Scripture. We look at scripture at a glance and we find out it to be something totally different when we really dig into it. We read a story like the prodigal son and say, at first glance, it's a pretty simple story. It's about a sinner who runs from his father, feels bad, comes back and returns. His father receives him with open arms. It's a picture of God's grace. And there's a party and the older brother gets angry because a party is thrown for his brother. And he has been the good one all along. And I'll just be honest with you, for years and years and years, I empathized with the older brother. I mean, I've been good. I've been the good one. I should get the reward. And at first glance, the story isn't overly complex. But if we really look at the context and the characters and what Jesus is trying to communicate, I believe we find a rich story that helps expound on the love of God. And it shows us the different types of sin we pursue. So turn to Luke 15. Turn to Luke 15 again. I know you have your Bibles back there. That Bible is free for you if you don't have a Bible. uh, We have pens back there as well. We're reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And to understand this passage, before we jump in, we need to look at the context first. Two crowds have come to listen to Jesus. The first were tax collectors and sinners, people who strayed from the traditional moral norms. They were engaged in wild living. They'd like to sin and they leaned into that sin. And they were often pitied and ridiculed during that day and age. The second group were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They held to the traditional moral religious norms They studied scripture and worshiped and prayed. But if you read the gospels, they were also self-righteous. And they were also the ones looking down on the sinners and tax collectors. And they also looked down on Jesus for associating with sinners and tax collectors. And so that's kind of where we find ourselves in Luke 15. Look at 15, 1 and 2. This will kind of set the stage for everything that follows. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. They were angry saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. 
And so they're angry that Jesus is eating with sinners and he's associating with sinners. He is receiving them to eat in this day and age. It wasn't just to have a meal. It was to associate with somebody, to be on their level, to relationally identify with them. It, it had more significance than, than we think. It's sharing the lunch table. These are people that I am with. And these tax collectors and, and Pharisees do not like it. And so this parable there's two parables before this, but, but this group of parables is actually directed at the Pharisees. And so while we're going to talk about God's love and grace today, we need to remember the context. Jesus is directly addressing the Pharisees' issues with him and his association with those that they would call sinners. So we have two parables. We'll talk about those here in a second. But go down to verse 11. Go down to verse 11. This is the third parable he tells. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So usually... An inheritance was given after death. And so this is like going to your father and saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. So can I just go ahead and have the money right now? Can I go ahead and have what is coming to me? And this was a great dishonor to request this of your father. This would have brought shame upon him, upon your family, for a son to wish their father dead so that they could get what they want. This money is more important than you. This inheritance, this land is more important than you. So this is a great offense to the father. But the father graciously allows this to happen. Look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so the younger son, this is why he wants that money. He wants to party. He's rumspringa, baby. If you ever like, think about the Amish people, they just want to go get away from the community. They want to live life on their own terms. This is what we call the sin of selfishness or self-fulfillment. It's what most Christians think about when they think about sin. People want to live life away from the Father. They want to do whatever they want, even if it's against the Father's wishes, on their own time, uh, the way they want to do it, how they want to do it. They just want to live life. Younger people, that's, that's what they kind of, I just want to live life. I can't wait to get away from my parents. That is the sin of self-righteousness, of, of waywardness, of selfishness. It's an attempt to find joy, purpose, and happiness away from the Father. And this brother leans into it. He blows his entire inheritance. And then a famine hits. Look at verse 15 through 18. So when he went and hired himself, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So to fix this situation, 
he begins to work for a Gentile slopping pigs. Now for a Jew, Gentiles and pigs were one and the same. Now in that terrible time, as a Jew, you could not eat pork. God bless Jesus and his work on the cross. We can eat, we can have bacon and things like that. Bacon bits, all the good stuff. Ham for Easter. But in this day and age, to eat pork was the same as renouncing your faith. It was an offense to to be around a pig, to associate with pigs. They were dirty, unclean animals. There's a curse in the Talmud. It's a Jewish commentary that says, Cursed be the man who keeps swine, and cursed be the man who teaches his son Greek wisdom. Now, this younger son could have found a a synagogue or a Jewish, not at that point, a Jewish community to, to get help from. He could have gone to his Jewish kin and said, I am hungry, I am in need, but instead he associates with a Gentile and he subjugates himself to work that is debasing. And when we kind of lose the, the cultural significance and how this would have sounded back in the day, but this would be like a Christian kid saying, Dad, I hate you. I hate you and I know your bank account. So I'm going to go, I'm going to pull out my share, I'm going to take a, a third of what's in your bank account And then they leave and they spend that money on drugs and prostitutes. They hit rock bottom. And and instead of coming to a church or a place that can help them, it's like, hey, I'm going to go to the Satanist and I'm going to work at an adult video store. Like that's the kind of offense that this son has committed to his father. We would think, man, that would be terrible if my son did that. That's how the dad would feel. He's working for a Gentile. And he's, he's slopping pigs. Come on. Come on, what's going on? And this son has lost everything. He has lost his identity, his religious identity. He's lost his family, his ethnic identity. And he's rejected his father for a quest of self-gratification. And as a result, he's found himself homeless, penniless, friendless, and foodless. That is what living apart from Christ looks like from heaven. You know, we may not be wallowing in a pigsty yet, but scripture describes us apart from Christ as rebellious children, squandering his love and riches as we run into the far country of sin, slavery, and slop. Look at verse 17. But when, I, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. And I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And so he finally wakes up and he realizes, man, what am I doing? What am I, what am I doing with my life? My, my, my sin has brought me to this, this dark place. I, I must repent. 
repent. Repentance. That's a word we talk a lot about in church, but we really don't articulate what it means. It's more than just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance involves first recognizing a few things. Repentance involves recognizing that that I'm a sinner. This nightmare that I'm in right now, the situation I'm in right now is because of me. It's a a self-induced nightmare. But it's also a recognition of, of God's goodness, God's favor. Man, this, this Gentile master is feeding the pigs better than me. My father's servants have more than enough bread. My father is generous. My father is good. And so there's a recognition of our sin and his goodness. Repentance also involves confession. This idea of speaking our sin out loud and and owning it to God. I'm here because of me. And I've not only sinned against my father, I've sinned against my father in heaven. You see, all horizontal relational sin also goes vertical. Because God tells us to love our neighbor, to serve our neighbor, to respect other people. So when we break that command, we're breaking his command. And so all sin is offensive. And he confesses that relational, horizontal sin. He confesses that vertical sin. More importantly, I've sinned against you, God. I've sinned against you. And he doesn't give conditions. He doesn't say, well... I wasn't being treated fairly or my home life was rough or it was somebody else's fault. He just owns his junk. He says, I've done this. And then he turns. It says he returns back to his father. And this is probably the thing we forget about when we talk about repentance. Repentance has this idea of like, I'm going this way. I'm going one way. And then you kind of stop and you realize, man, there's a lot of junk and and a lot of selfishness and a lot of pride that has gotten me to this place. A lot of rebellion that has gotten me to this place. And the act of repentance isn't just saying, I feel bad for those things. The act of repentance is forsaking everything that has brought you here. And then you turn around and you run back to your loving father. That is what biblical repentance is. It's not just guilt or a feeling of shame. It's the act of turning back to Christ, turning back to God. And that's what this son does. And I love this picture. Look at verse 21. I'm sorry, go back to 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran, embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
What a picture of the gospel. The son smelling of pig and and Gentile comes back to his father and his father sees him in the distance and, and does what's undignified in that time. And he sprints to his son. Now, dads, when we sprint, it looks kind of ugly sometimes, but he sprints to his son. He doesn't care what he looks like, and and he shows his son grace and mercy, and he embraces his son because he loves his son. His son is back. His son is alive. Enough of this servant talk, son. Bring him his ring. Bring him his robe, which were pictures of sonship, of being a child of the father. Bring him these things. The morning time is over. It is time to throw a barbecue. It is time to celebrate. It is time to party because my son has been found. My son has been found. Years ago, Megan and I, well, I'll just say this. Megan and I don't claim to be the greatest parents all the time. We're pretty good parents. Uh, We love our kids. Right, Asher? Okay, nothing there. That helps. Uh, but we, uh, when Asher was two, he was crazy and uh, everywhere and didn't, you know, just kind of did his own thing. And, and he just was, he just, it was, it, it was hard, but we loved him and it was good. Uh, but we're at a Halloween party and we were doing this ministry uh, the, in uh, this apartment complex ministry and we throw this giant Halloween party and there's over a hundred people there and people are all dressed differently and the, the kids are all dressed. So it's kind of hard to identify your kids. And towards the end of this Halloween party, it's dark. And me and Megan look at each other. And we're like, well, do you have Asher? Do you have Asher? And we were both were like, no, I don't. And, and we started to panic. You ever lost one of your kids in, in a public place? If you say no, you're probably lying. Um, you have we started to panic and and you start to go over the worst case scenario in your head. I don't want to be on the news. I don't want my kid to not that that's, but I don't want to be on the news because my something bad has happened to my kid And, and hundreds of people start screaming Asher all over this giant apartment, over 300 apartments, giant apartment complex. Tons and tons of of hallways, stairwells, rooms to get lost in. Everybody's yelling, Asher, Asher. And this goes on for 20 minutes. It felt like 20 years. And I am sick. I am sick. Asher, Asher. My son's lost. My son's gone. My life is going to be different from this point forward. I don't know where he is. I don't know if he's hurt. I don't know what's happened to him. And somebody goes, we finally found him. We found him. And he was just roaming a distant hallway, far away off, on his own, perfectly content. Now, as a father, my first response was not frustration or anger. As a father, my first response was to pick him up and hug him, embrace him. Because my son was back. I get to hear his little raspy voice again. I get to be around him and and, and I get to live life with him. My son has been found. He was lost. He has been found. He is with me. It's time to celebrate. Now, was it foolish for a two-year-old to run off on their own? Yeah, and we talked about that. 
But at that point, my son was here and my heart was full of joy. And I think that's just a, a small picture of how God feels when the far off sinner repents. When we repent and come back to him, he celebrates. Now imagine half of the crowd, the sinners, the sinners in the crowd hearing this and the impact it must have had on them. God responds graciously with me when I turn to him. No matter how far I've run away, if I turn and repent, I will always turn into the loving arms of God and be robed in Christ and given sonship and a banquet of salvation. That is a good and gracious God. That's kind of where we end this story a lot of times. And we think, man, this story is about a sinner who runs from his father and repents. And we celebrate, and we should celebrate, because God is gracious and accepts every one of us who, who has at one point been the rebellious child, who has run away. But it's also a story about another type of sin and sinner. Look at verse 25. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, which, asked what these things mean. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Now, refusing to attend a party you were obviously invited to was a great dishonor. And then to have the host of the party come outside and to entreat you, to beg you to come in and join the festivities was also a great dishonor. And he answered his father, look, and that wasn't a nice, hey, hey, look, this is a look, you. Look, you, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But with this son of yours, notice he doesn't call him my brother. He says, when this son of yours shows up, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So there's anger. There's resentment by the older brother, and this anger and resentment. Look at verse 28. Look at verse 28. But he was angry. This is to reflect and mirror in verse 2, the Pharisees grumbling, they were angry. How could the Father receive a sinner like this and celebrate? How can Jesus eat with sinners like this and celebrate? If the younger brother represented the sinners and tax collectors, the elder brother represented the Pharisees. 
And so the younger brother was a picture of selfishness and the sin of self-fulfillment. The older brother illustrates the sin of self-righteousness. On one side, we have self-fulfillment, self-discovery apart from God. And the other, we have self-righteousness. And when you're self-righteous, you really don't need God. Look at the older brother. He sees no need for repentance. I mean, I'm the one who obeys. What do I need to repent for? He compares himself favorably to his brother. I have served my father. My brother, he wasted his inheritance on prostitutes. Self-righteous people, they love pointing out the sin of others because it makes them feel better. And they also despise grace. It's, if there's any justice, my brother would suffer. We should be roasting him instead of a fattened calf. I'm the good one. He's the sinner. Furthermore, the older brother expects to receive a special reward from his father because he's been so obedient. He's like, where's my party? And notice the party that he wants. He wants a party with him and his friends, not with his father and his family. So he too wants to live it up on his own in a way. He wants the father's goods. He wants his father's inheritance, a kickback. He does not want a relationship with his father. Neither son in their sin wanted a relationship with the father. We call this story the prodigal son. It should really be called the two prodigal sons. One needs to repent of his waywardness his life apart from God. The other needs to repent of his self-congratulatory boasting, his preoccupation with rewards, his disdain for others who aren't as good as he is, his lust for judgment on people he deems deserve it. I mean, one is a prodigal in action. The other is a prodigal at heart. But they're both prodigals. And they both need to repent. And in Jesus is inviting the Pharisees to look in the mirror to see that they fall short in a different way so that they might repent as well. The father graciously wanted the young sinner, the young sinner to return and he lovingly entreats the elder brother to return to the party as well. This is one of those rare instances where Jesus isn't harsh with the Pharisees. He wants them to see their sin. And, and man, we, we often look at the Pharisees when we read scripture from our perspective and say, man, those guys, those Pharisees are so self-righteous. When we fail to see, even in the subtle ways, that we have an elder brother heart, that we can be self-righteous in the church today. Do you like feeling better than others? Like, do you like feeling better than others? In all ways, your kids, sports, academics, behavior, how much money you make, how you're doing. Does it feel good to be better than others or maybe to not be the worst? (laughs) Maybe you don't want to be the best, but as long as I'm not the worst, because being the worst would be the worst. Do you find it easy to point out the sin of others? Tim Keller 
wrote a great book called The Prodigal God, which I read through before this. So a lot of his fingerprints are on this sermon. He says, competitive comparison is the main way elder brothers achieve a sense of self-significance. At least I'm not them. At least I don't make those kind of mistakes. Do you expect your goodness to pay off? I see this a lot in the church. Do you think that if you're good and follow the rules, God should give you something in return? I've heard that over and over again. Man, I'm trying, I'm trying, but nothing good has happened. We sang the song earlier, and I'm going to say it to you. Is Christ enough for you? Do you want his rewards, or do you want a relationship with him? If you want his rewards and what he can give you, there's a tinge of self-righteousness there. Is your commitment to God, your service to God, joyless and based on fear? Fear that God won't help you or bless you if you mess up? Or is your devotion to him and your service to him rooted in joy and love? I know a lot of you work in kids' ministry. You stack chairs. Is it a drudgery to do those things because you do it out of, out of fear or some sense of if I don't do this, God will be mad. But if I do this, God will be happy with me. That's self-righteousness. Or do you serve just out of joy and love? I love God so much that I want to help others see him. I love God so much that I just want to set up chairs so that we can worship God. I love God so much that I'm going to lead a community group that, that's going to invite other people into my home. Do we want God to welcome sinners or punish them. Sadly, we live in one of the most divisive times in history where the other is the enemy. And I've often heard from cross-believing, <laughs> Jesus-following Christians that I wish that the enemy would just be wiped off the planet. Do we want judgment or do we want to see sinners saved? If you're the elder brother, even at times, repent. Repent. Turn the other way. Guys, we have to. We have to, as a church, put off elder brotherliness. We cannot be a church full of elder brothers. Many people have left or avoided churches that are filled with elder brothers. Judgmental, fearful people, insecure people, who are trying to prove themselves to God at all costs. And when you do that, you become abusive, you spread fear and paranoia, and it becomes a toxic environment. If you write anything down today, this is what I want you to write down. The church must be full of loving brothers who point people to the true elder brother. I'm going to say that again. The church must be full of loving brothers who point people to the true elder brother. Now we talked about it. This parable, these three parables are speaking against the Pharisee and their issues with Jesus. And there's the parable of the lost sheep. There's the parable of the lost coin. And then there's the parable we talked about today, the lost son or the prodigal son. Now what we notice in the first two parables is Something is lost. Something of great value is lost. 
And a person in that parable goes to great lengths to find that thing. And when they find that thing, they celebrate. And so if you were reading these in order for the first time, you would expect, okay, we get to this story about a son who's lost and runs away. You would expect someone to show up and go seek and save that younger brother. You'd maybe think, oh, he has an older brother. That older brother should have got like a party together and say, hey, we're going to go get that younger brother because he is valuable. He is worth the effort. It may require sacrifice and a cost, but we are going to go get that younger brother because he is in trouble. He is lost. That's what you would expect. But the older brother doesn't do this. And I think Jesus wants us to think about and yearn for a true elder brother. And Jesus is that true elder brother. Jesus is our true elder brother. And he didn't just cross state lines to come to sinners. He came from heaven to earth. And paid a great cost, his life, to bring us into God's family. And the work of Jesus speaks to both the younger and elder brother. Younger brother, your sin has been taken care of. You do not need to make yourself right to come to the Father. Jesus is who makes you right so that you can come to the Father. When you place your faith in what he has accomplished for your sake on the cross, your sin, your disobedience, no matter how deep or great has been taken care of through his reconciling death and resurrection. Come as you are. Now, most of us, when we have people over to our house, what do we do? We want to clean up our house, right? We want to give the, give the best picture of our family possible as we can. And so I don't want to dishonor anybody by bringing them in to a dirty house. Can we just say that rule doesn't apply at Central Bible Church? Can we just agree that as long as we clean the toilet, everything else doesn't matter? Like, but we do that. We do the same thing for God. I need to clean my house. I need to make everything right before I come to him. But the gospel comes to that sinner and says, no, you just need to turn and repent. It doesn't matter if you come to to Jesus smelling of pig and dirt and slop. You may not stay that way. (laughs) In fact, you won't stay that way. But he says, come as you are. The gospel speaks to the self-righteous. Stop trying. Your good works are not good enough. Especially when your good works are nothing but hollow obedience. Humble yourself. Understand that the path of salvation is not by you trying hard, but it's because Jesus has done something hard for us. And it happens when we put our faith and trust in him. Only Jesus can bring about righteousness in us. Place your faith in him alone, not yourself. So whatever side of the spectrum you are on, sinner, self-righteous, this morning I encourage you to repent. And if it's for the first time, repent for the first time. And you're saved. The loving Father will accept you.
as you are, love you, embrace you, and he'll change your life. And if you know Jesus and you've, you've drifted towards waywardness or you've drifted towards self-righteousness, my encouragement to you is repent. Repent, come back to the gospel, come back to the gospel, come back to the gospel, come back to what he has done for you. And then we must follow Jesus as a loving brother by pointing people to him. There are younger brothers out there. And we are the arms and feet of Jesus. We are the ones who he has called to reach them. And guess what, guys? They're not far off. They're not far off. They're far off in one way. I've been doing more work out in the world than, than I have. In the past month, I've done, I've done more work just out in the secular world than I've done in my first 12 years of ministry combined. And here's what I've learned. We as, not just central, but just the general church are very far from the world. Like we're just, we're just, we distanced ourselves. And I don't think that's been intentional, but maybe it's subconscious decisions or just self, I don't know. But we're far from that world. And man, when I'm in that school, I see kids sexually harass other kids. And I've called a couple of them out. I, I told one kid, I'll go back to prison. Uh... If you do that again, if you sexually harass a girl like that again, we'll, we'll have a long conversation. Um, we, have, we have kids just lost, alone. We have kids with, with very rough family lives who are suffering, who are struggling. And it would be easy for me to be in that environment and be like, I hate these kids because of how they talk, how they act, and what they do. That's not what I'm called to be and do. I'm called to follow Jesus, our true elder brother. I'm called to cross boundaries and cross lines and cross that distance and, and be where they are so that I may show them the love of Christ, that waywardness is not the way, that self-righteousness is not the way, but Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who brings you back to your loving Father. Amen?